Now the Old Testament reading for this morning, as well as the sermon text, comes from Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the, were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watered the garden, flowing, flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It's, it winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is gold. Aromatic resin and onyx are there also. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of the Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Ascends the reading of God's holy word. Please pray with me. Our God, we come before your word. We ask that you would make your message most clear, 
that you would use your servant to these particular ends and that your kingdom would be clearly proclaimed and made manifest as from your word. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, cause us to hear the voice of Christ himself, even in this time and this hour. In all this we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. <laughs> There's no place like home. It's a beautiful thought, isn't it? Uh, that though uh, the thought that at, for each of us, some special place is waiting at the end of the day, whether we have been away from home for a day or whether we've been away from home for a week or for months at a time, having a place to come back to, a place to rest, a place to dwell in that we can call home. It's a joyful and glorious thing, one I would dare say that we often forget when we are considering the goodness of God to us and the particular gifts that he has given to us. How good it is to have a special place to dwell that we call home because of the special people that are there, the relationships waiting for us when we return there. Man needs a place to dwell, just as he needs to have relationships with others. But what about God? Does God need a place to dwell, to come home to at the end of the day, to recline back reading the newspaper? Does he need a place to be in relationship with others? I mean, repeatedly in the scriptures, we encounter God in his sanctuary. We're in the holies of holies, in his special place. We see him residing in the Ark of the Covenant as it goes forward before Israel in battle. He dwells in the tabernacle made by the hands of man. Though he is a God who is not limited by space or time, a God who is omnipresent, who is everywhere at all times, God enters into space and time and dwells near with his people. Where his foot treads becomes a holy ground, a place where man and God can commune and be together. What is the point of God having a place to dwell in Scripture? It seems you know, to take a prominent place as you read through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, this idea that God comes down and is given a place to dwell on earth with man. Even the church uh, at various times has made use of this particular idea of God's special presence in a particular place. In the early 16 or 600s, all the way through the 1600s, uh, for a thousand years, if you were a criminal running from the law, under the laws of asylum, you could find and go to a sanctuary or within the bounds of the, the church, you would find sanctuary. You would be able to be dealt with. You wouldn't be able to be dealt with by the laws of this world because once you cross the property line of the church, you were in God's place. You were in his domain, and the laws of the world did not extend 
into that kingdom and into that domain and that particular realm. Why is it so important in Scripture that God have a place to dwell with his people? This morning, as we begin to look at Genesis to at our text before us, what is central to our text is God's place. This place that God cultivates and builds and manifests himself in really is the focus of what is before us, even as he places man and woman in the midst of the garden to care for and protect it. And if you want to call it something a little broader than God's place, you could say that he is building a kingdom. God is building a kingdom upon this particular earth and this world. And as our text opens up, the first thing we see is God building a people and place. God building a people and place, or you could say building a kingdom. Building a kingdom. As you come to verse 4 of chapter 2, we come to what is titled, or the title of the section, the generations of the heavens and the earth. And this may seem like an odd way uh, to introduce this new section, you know, uh, considering that it doesn't focus on children of earth and moon and sky uh, below, is just an incredibly strange way for us to understand uh, what God is doing. It's difficult for us to wrap our mind around this particular phrase. But what is going on here is it is a uh, focus on the garden. It is on focus on God in creation in particular. What's happening here is Genesis 2-4 is acting like a title for the following section that runs all the way through chapter 5. Just as Genesis 1-1 is a title that introduces you what you will see and unfold throughout chapter 1, Genesis 2-4 is a title signaling a new section. And in this way, Genesis divides itself into 10 sections. You can go home and read through Genesis, and each time you find the phrase about the generations of so and so, each time what is going on is a focusing in, the, in on the narrative upon a particular people and a particular land. And each time we read those words, these are the generations, we are introduced to a particular genealogical line with a particular seed in a particular place. And the point here being, with each new generation of so-and-so, little by little, the scriptures will begin more and more to focus on one particular line and one particular people. And that is even what is going on here. Though Adam and Eve are the first ones, he is focusing on a particular one and a particular place, even as we are beginning to see it in Adam and in the place of the garden, this particular land, this kingdom that is being established. Whereas Genesis 1 shows us the cosmic creation, sort of this uh, camera panning out and showing the whole of all creation and all that he has created. Here, in our text, you are coming closer. In chapter 2, he is coming closer and focusing in on a particular creature, the creature who, in fact, is the climax of all of his creation. And he is focusing on God's relationship with this man in this dwelling place called Eden. 
No longer is God as creator of the cosmos in focus, but he is connecting to man he created, to the man he made, and the land that he dwells in. His focus is on a kingdom. And our text tells us that uh, the formation of man from the dust of the ground, that while no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant had sprung up and there was no rain on the land, then God formed man from the ground. He sculpted him and there was no accidents by his design or in his design. And though it may not seem like a, a very royal beginning, uh, for the crowning part of his creation. It's a fitting beginning. Oh, for in our text, again, people and place are closely connected. Even the etymology of the word, the, the structuring of the words in Hebrew for man and land are very close. In the Hebrew, man, the, you would pronounce it Adam. In the land or earth, you would pronounce Adamah. Okay, there is a wordplay going on here. There is a close connection being made between man as an earthly creation. You know, he is not a spirit trying to escape from his body to play on the harp in the clouds. Rather, he is made man as an earthly being. He is closely connected with the ground itself. He is a being of the soil, one who came from the dust of the earth, who is called to tend and to work the earth, who will dwell on the earth, and finally, to dust, he will return. We are very earthly flesh and blood creatures, and that is God's perfect design for us. We aren't designed to be disembodied beings. We are designed to be earthly creatures living on an earthly world. And so God has formed this man from the dust and the ground, and then God breathes life into man. He breathes into this man, and life comes into him. He exists finally. Everything that man is, everything that we are being made in the image of God is because God breathed into us. By his own breath, we exist and we are even happiest when we move in accordance with him and his particular will for us. But the narrative keeps moving on here and the text is focusing in on the place that this man will reside, as I already spoke about, where God places him. This kingdom God is building. You can think of uh, of an uh, ancient king, one who stands and is looking upon his particular lands that are within his sight. God is focusing in on this particular place. Again, there is a play on words here that focuses the text, connecting the man to the ground. And this beautiful imagery begins to unfold for the place where God puts man. He places him in a garden where God, or which God had been creating. A place where God and man commune. A place where God meets with man and walks with him. Here is a place where man would dwell in God's presence. It is a good place. It is a perfect place, a home. And there is sweet communion here. And in this garden that God plants and fills with every good tree to spring from the ground, to be pleasant to the eye and good for fruit. And in the midst, he places two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge 
of good and evil. The man is not to touch, but he is intended to guard it. And in that particular scene that begins to unfold, we see God building not just a place, not just a, a general, generic garden, but a temple. God building a temple. A good question for us as we look at this text is, why focus in on this one garden? I mean, a moment ago, in Genesis 1, we saw God create everything in the entire universe, the stars in the sky, the plants of the field, the world over. And now scripture narrows in on one point in all of the created order. Why? Why this focus on this one piece of real estate overall others in God's creation? Why this land? Well, the answer really comes in verses 10 through 14, where there is this uh, uh, obscure reference to rivers and to gold and to onyx that seems very strange and out of place and out of accord with the particular merit narrative. I mean, these four verses are some of the places in Scripture that we just skim over because we aren't sure why it's here. But if you look closely, you'll notice that God has created Eden as a temple. God has created it as a holy place where God and man meet together. And that's what a temple is in Scripture. It is a place where God dwells. It is a place where God meets with man, where there is communion between these two. And if you take the time to look at it in Scripture, it is a place, um, if you take the time to look at it, what is described here matches every single description of temple and tabernacle and heavenly place where God and man meet together. It tells us that there is a river that flowed out of Eden. And it reminds you of Ezekiel 47, verses 1 and 2, where the river flowed from the threshold of the temple itself. Or it even speaks to Revelation 22, which we read, where the river flows from the very throne of God. God sits here and dwells here, and man has been ushered into his presence in the new Jerusalem, into the holy temple of God, just as back at Eden. This river flows and it is a source of life for this particular land that God is in where he communes with man. The language of verse 10 indicates water is running down from Edom for this is the only way that the river can run. It can't run uphill, which means Eden is on a mountain of some sort. At the very least, if you, you refuse to say it is a mountain, it is a raised piece of ground high enough for four rivers to run in different directions all around it. Again, this alludes to the temples in Scripture. If you read 1 Kings chapter 6, the temple is described as having three stories. And the higher you go, to, you come closer to the Holy of Holies, the place where God resides. Or you come to the, closer to the very presence of God himself. And this temple was built upon Mount Moriah, upon the highest point of the city in Jerusalem. And these connections, they aren't haphazard. They are very intentional. The temple and even the tabernacle are both patterned after this holy place in Eden. Listen to these words from Ezekiel 28. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, 
raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardos, topaz, and diamond, beryl, and onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and created or crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were prepared or created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherubim. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. Notice how it connects the mountain of God to this place of Eden. And he says, I destroyed you, O guardian cherubim, from the stones of fire. In other words, Eden is the original temple. This is the original place where God and man meet together. All other temples in scriptures are patterned after this particular place that you are finding here. It is the first place that God has dwelt where man has total and complete access to him and relationship with him. If you don't believe me, uh, go back and read 1 Kings chapter 6 sometime or Exodus chapter 26 and 7. The parallels are strong as they can be considering we're only given a few short verses from Genesis 2 that deal directly with temple language. 1 Kings speaks of gourds and flowers being carved into the temple, bringing imagery of a garden within the walls of this particular temple. It speaks of palm trees and flowers, various plants decorating the interior, again, mimicking a garden image. The sanctuary has images of cherubim throughout. The very angel who stands guarding the holy place of Eden with a fiery sword, as Genesis 3 tells us. The inner sanctuary of both uh, the tabernacle and the holy of holies in the, te- in the temple are overlaid with gold. Something Genesis 2 takes the time to stress is found abundantly in these hills of Eden. I mean, what a strange point to make here in Genesis 2, unless you are invoking temple imagery. The onyx found in the hills is something worn on the priestly garments who enter the temple areas at the tabernacle. Clearly, these earthly temples and tabernacles are imitating the Garden of Eden, which in turn is imitating the heavenly throne room that you find in Revelation 21 and 22. And if you've missed what I've been saying up until this point, just get this. God is here in this place. He is in this particular land of Eden. He has made a special holy hill for himself to have communion with his people. That is the point here. That is what God is doing here. Notice even the very first commandment that God gives to Adam communicates this as well. Verse 15 tells us that God put man in the garden or this temple, if you will. 
And Adam, this one made in the image of God and in the likeness of God, this one who is to have dominion over the whole world as a lesser king serving a greater king, this one who is to rule over the kingdoms of this earthly world in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, is given a task. Adam is given something to do. The great king commands his vassal or his lesser king to obey in totality, to do his command. And the Lord God commands man to do two things. First, the man is commanded to guard and keep the garden. Most of our English translations uh, do us damage uh, by translating it work and keep. But in every other instance in the Old Testament, when you find these particular commands get together, these two commands, it is in connection with the duties of the priests. The priests who are the ones in the scriptures who are always guarded or commanded to guard and to keep something. And it is always the sanctuary of God in which they are commanded to protect and to keep. Priests are kept are to keep unholy ones out of the sanctuary, lest judgment fall upon all of God's people and destroy the kingdom of God. They are to keep the place where God dwells, free from any outsider who would contaminate God's holy place. In other words, Adam's first task is that of a priest. He is being commanded to guard this realm against those who would defame or to face the name of God. He is to cast out any troublemakers. That is his goal. That is his orientation. He is being set in this place to protect this realm of God and his glory. He is to uphold the perfect standard written both upon his heart and proclaimed and given to him by the Lord himself. He is acting as a guarding and protecting priest. And then Adam is commanded to do one more thing. He is commanded not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam, this one who acts as our forefather and representative, he is given a task by the Lord God. He is to protect the realm from those who would speak against God as Lord and King, particularly if they call him a liar. He is to perfectly fulfill these obligations given in these commands by the Lord God, the ruler of this universe, but also the God of the covenant with his people. A title for God that you find in this particular passage again and again for God, Lord God, Lord God, Lord God. It is a title given that connects the God of creation to this God and this God that we've been reading about with the God of the covenant In other words, Moses, who is writing this book, he is taking pains to show that the same God who brought Israel up out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and then established a covenant with them to keep, this same God who established a covenant with Adam and Abraham is the God who you see before you. He is a God of the covenant. And Adam, in a very similar way to Israel, to Abraham, he is, or to, excuse me, especially Israel, he is given a covenant and he is commanded to keep it in full. He is to obey the Lord God. He is not to stray to it or from it to the right or to the left. And if he passes this particular test set before him, he will enter into everlasting 
life, he will indeed dwell with God forever. There will be perfect communion, for the temple of God was protected. And yet, if he fails, he will be cast from this good land, from this holy place of God, and separated from God. And being separated from God, he will surely die. A covenant is made here. And Adam is bound to uphold his end so that the kingdom of God will flourish on earth. And there is this scene shift that seems uh, often disconnected from what has just been said. And yet it connects in the most important ways where there is a shift from the temple of God to God creating a people for the kingdom of God. Creating a people for the kingdom of God. And this beautiful scene unfolds from verse 18 on where God assesses the situation and he realizes Adam should not be alone, that he ought to have a particular helpmate. And so all the animals are brought before Adam who names them just as God himself named everything created in the world. And Adam, reflecting God's mind, he agrees with God. He comes to the same conclusion. No helpmate is found. And Adam is caused to fall into a deep sleep, and God takes a rib from Adam's side and creates woman. Matthew Henry once said, I think quite beautifully, he said, Woman is not taken out of his head to top him, or out of his feet to be trampled by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. She is his equal, being called his helper, a title It is not derogatory in any shape or form. This is a title that God himself takes 16 times in the Old Testament. God will be Israel's help. And in the same way, is woman to be man's help. This one who God has given, and God brings this woman to man and gives him to Adam. The language there, you very much get the sense of a father giving away a bride. It's one who is bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, and they will become one flesh together. They join together in a covenant relationship. But what is the point of this scene here? I mean, why, after establishing a place for God to dwell in, focus our attention on a marriage? What is at stake here? What is so important that it needs to be communicated right here in the same breath as God establishes a, a, a temple and a priesthood and a place. Dear Christian, God is building a kingdom. The kingdom of God is being manifested on earth. He is establishing a domain. He is guarding a holy realm and protecting it. And now we see the intention of multiplying upon that domain and in that domain to fulfill the commandments given to fill and subdue the earth. And the story ends and it tells us that the man and the woman dwelt there naked and unashamed. All was right in the world. God had established a society and it was perfect. He had established a, a relationship between husband and wife and they were in perfect Harmony together, manifesting a perfect union. Creation was in order. All things were right in the world, and there was no sin or shame. And yet in a moment, all these things 
are lost in the next chapter. The woman, instead of helping guard and protect the garden, helps her husband to disobey God's commandments. The man who acted as a royal priest and head of the human race casts all mankind, instead of protecting them from sin and misery, casts us all into that estate of sin and misery. Instead of casting Satan out of the realm, he indulges him and listens to his voice. The man and the woman, instead of inheriting life and paradise forever, they are cast out from this particular place and this particular land. The ground where God and man would be in communion together is blocked by a cherubim holding a fiery sword. In a single stroke, man destroyed the place and kingdom God had built. It was gone. And the question for the rest of us is, where does this leave us now? I mean, do we still have a place to call home? Is it really gone and out of our reach Forever Is there a way to commune with God who has set us away from his presence? People of God, though man marred God's creation, though we desecrated and destroyed the holy temple and divided his perfect kingdom, our God has not been stopped. He cannot be stopped. He cannot be thwarted in his actions. Instead, God opened a new and living way. Christ came into the world so that he could do one thing, so that he could bring people back into the presence of God, so that man and God could commune once again together. Though it came at a price to the God-man, he took the wrath of God upon our, or for our sins that we deserved upon himself. He suffered the consequences that we were meant to. But through him, through his satisfaction for our rebellion against God, we are brought into the kingdom of God itself. Christ rebuilt the temple that we destroyed, and he did so in three days, even as he told us in John chapter 2. Destroy this temple, he said, and I will rebuild it in three days. And of course, he was speaking of his own body. Christ came as our great High priest, this one that the book of Hebrews says was our high priest, and he made intercession on our behalf. And now, through him, through this perfect second Adam, we can enter the presence of God and live in communion with him. And one day, we will dwell with him. Though there will be no temple there, for Christ himself will be the temple, as Revelation 21 says. People of God, there's no place like home. And praise God that one day, for those who trust in Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior, who rest in his merits and in his work done upon Calvary, one day for those ones who have been brought into the kingdom of God, we will dwell in the presence of this one who loved us so much that he died for our sins. He is bringing a people that have strayed away from him like lost sheep back home. He is drawing them back into communion 
with himself. That is what the story of scriptures is all about. It's about Christ Jesus who came into the world to save sinners that we might dwell in the presence of God once again. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, you who dwell and reign above, we rejoice in you, you who have seen the wickedness of our rebellion, we who stood against you, who desecrated your holy place, who broke faith and fellowship with you by listening to the lies of your enemy and ours. Father, we pray that you would cause us to rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice, for you came, and you came bringing a new priest, one who was greater than Adam to begin with. And you came as a new temple, and you came as our perfect bridegroom, bringing us back into the kingdom of God. Father, though it may not seem like it, though we walk through this weary world, we know that all things are under your feet. We pray, Father, that you would increase our faith to know this truth and that you would increase our longing for that day that is awaiting, that day when man will dwell in your presence again unhindered by sin's presence and entrance into the world. Father, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.